The Big Story from The Straits Times on Money FM 89.3. You're watching The Big Story with me, Chiao Suen. Subscribe to The Straits Times channel to stay up to date with our live news updates. Fresh data on Singapore's population and we begin with one notable trend. The number of permanent residencies granted in 2021 is at a 12-year high. This is the most number of PRs given out since the tightening of the immigration framework in late 2009. In 2021, 33,435 individuals were granted PR, up from 27,470 in 2020. Government's Population and Brief report said that the higher figure was due to the easing of travel restrictions and safe management measures, which previously slowed the new citizenship and PR process. Separately, 21,537 individuals were given citizenship. About 6% of them were children born overseas to Singaporean parents. Of the new PRs, most are aged between 21 and 40. The vast majority over 80% have post-secondary qualifications. Most originated from Southeast Asian countries at about 60%, while about 32% were from other Asian countries. About 7% are from other parts of the world. Now, while the number of PRs has gone up, so has the number of Singaporeans living abroad. This year, there were 185,800 Singaporeans living overseas, which is a 3.5% increase from last year. That said, this remains lower than the 200,000 from a decade ago. Meanwhile, Singapore continues to see a population that is getting older faster than before. Joining us now is Associate Professor of Economics at the Singapore University of Social Sciences, Walter Thesera. Thanks for joining us today, Walter. So we see the population growth rebounding after two years of decline. Do you think this upward trajectory is set to continue? And if so, how likely is it to exceed pre-COVID levels? Well, I want to point out that when you've got a city that's growing, it actually means the city is successful. You know, we're attracting new business, new economic activity, new ideas. Uh, that's why we're growing. So the growth of Singapore after COVID means that we continue to be a favoured destination for investment and talent. Uh, but the catch, of course, is that if you've got growth and you're not ready for it yet, uh, you know, in terms of infrastructure and society, then that's going to cause a lot of pain for Singaporeans. And we've already seen that, you know, people have raised a lot of concerns about property prices, the cost of living, uh, displacement of locals, for example, in the job market. So I think for this growth trajectory to continue, we're actually going to need two things. We will need the economy to continue to be vibrant. That will attract people here. Uh, but we also need Singaporeans to believe that the benefits are actually worth the social and other costs. Um, but, you know, assuming the economy does well, assuming that we can accommodate uh, the social concerns about immigration, I think we are actually likely to return to and exceed uh, the pre-COVID-19 population levels in Singapore. So speaking of achieving a balance between local and imported talent, the number of new PRs granted in 2021 is the highest since 2010. Presumably, this is to make up for the shortfall in 2020. Going ahead, how do you think a balance can be struck between economic and political considerations as Singapore tries to get more talent in? First, I think uh, Singaporeans, uh, we've always been very open to taking in immigrants who can contribute to our society and economy. Uh, if you look at a lot of Singapore families, you know, you're likely to find that at least one member of the family or extended family 
is going to be married to somebody who used to be an immigrant. Uh, over the last decade, I think about one in three or more marriages of a Singapore citizen actually involved a foreigner. So uh, the point is Singaporeans are prepared to accept immigrants who can contribute. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we're living on a very small island. We have a very competitive culture and economic system. So, of course, uh, when you've got immigration, we tend to feel the effects of competition, right, for, for property, for jobs, and so on, anytime we accept a large number of immigrants. Uh, so I think the key really is we, we've got to follow the same principles that I think we've been trying to follow for quite some time. We've got to be open but selective in terms of skills and the intent to assimilate into Singapore because we cannot practically accommodate everybody who wants to come here. Uh, we've got to make sure that the infrastructure, the economy or society uh, is able to accept and assimilate immigrants without disadvantaging locals or reducing our quality of life. Uh, you know, ultimately we have to ensure that the effects of competition from immigrants on Singaporeans is moderated. Uh, we have to have social safety nets in place uh, to catch Singaporeans when, when they fall. And we have to use immigration to transfer skills to Singaporeans and maximize opportunities as far as possible. Um, really, it's about making sure that immigration is helping Singaporeans and Singapore become better, not about displacing locals. And I think that's really been the key source of concern when, when people feel that the balance is maybe a bit further away from making Singapore better and maybe a bit more towards displacement, that's when people get really, uh, I think, concerned. So I think we just have to make sure that the balance is always in favour of making Singaporeans and Singapore better. Now, speaking of ensuring that the balance is sustainable, aside from competition, Singapore's ageing population has long been an area of real concern, and the latest data shows that it's only getting worse. What is one key measure that you think can be a game-changer in helping Singapore to better deal with the silver tsunami? Well, you know, I think it's difficult to just come up with one key measure because uh, aging is actually a complex issue that affects society much more broadly. Uh, and, you know, that's because uh, families today were a lot smaller. There are fewer children, fewer extended relatives to support the elderly. And most families today consist of, you know, dual income earners. So it's not so common that you've got family members who can provide part of full-time care for the elderly. And what this means is we actually need um, a bunch of different measures measures to help families take care of the elderly better because the traditional model of family-based care, care is actually very difficult for people to uphold today. Uh, so I think some of the key changes we're likely to meet we're going to need more flexibility and support at work. Uh, and that's because people are increasingly more likely to take time out of their careers to help care for the elderly at various points. Okay, So in addition to care for children, they're going to need to spend more time taking care of the elderly. So that's one, family support, uh, sorry, support for workers uh, and more flexibility so people can take time out to take care of the elderly. We're also going to need more social services and support for families to help caregivers with aging in place. So, you know, these are things like respite care, daycare for the elderly, home-based health and support services. Uh, and we also need more institu institutional care and support for the elderly uh, because at some point, many elderly cannot have all of their care needs addressed adequately at home. So really, it's got to be a multi-pronged approach uh, at the workplace, uh, at the homes and also at institutions so that our elderly can be accommodated more easily and families can also take care of the elderly better. Thank you, Walter, for the perspectives. Associate Professor of Economics at the Singapore University of Social Sciences, Walter Thesera.